Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Throughout the end of December and beginning of January, we are republishing Encore episodes of episodes that have had some of the most downloads. So this one is about practical strategies for gut health and IBS and bloating. And the fact that this episode got so many downloads and it does have a lot of practical information tells me that this is a really big issue for a lot of people. So I hope you enjoyed this replay of this episode, but I want you to know that I'm now taking clients for starting in January and February if you are dealing with a lot of gut issues and you need some good one-on-one support and testing. I hope you enjoy the practical strategies and tips that you can apply for this holiday season in the episode. All right, today we're going to talk about this little topic that sometimes is not super popular, but what does it look like if we're not pooping every day? And so Gina Norton has so kindly said, I would love to talk about this topic. And so Gina is a registered dietitian and holistic nutrition coach with Back to the Book Nutrition. And she works with gut and hormone issues. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in nutrition and is currently finishing up her functional medicine certification. She faced HPA access dysfunction, otherwise more commonly known as burnout, right? Hormone imbalance and IBS symptoms that traditional medicine couldn't help her fix. So she found answers in the world of holistic and functional medicine. And her own dramatic recovery opened her eyes to a whole new approach of health and gave her a passion to help others find healing as well. She has 15 years of experience in both the traditional medical system and holistic health. And she now combines all she's learned to leverage the best of research back and results different approaches to help her clients optimize their health. She's been featured on Dr. Axe, Prevention Magazine, Fitness Magazine, HuffPost, and others. Welcome, Dina. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we don't know what the title of this episode will be, but we feel like it's really practical strategies. And like you were saying offline, this is the basics that need to be in place before we get into advanced stuff. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's for anyone and everyone, truly, because what we're going to talk about today is the foundations for 
long-term gut health for optimizing digestive function. So whether you're like early days in your IBS or gut symptoms, or whether you're deep in the ditch and doing all the advanced stuff, the things we're going to talk about today are cheap, easy. You can do them today and they matter. They will get you more out of everything else you're trying to do to fix your gut. Yeah. Okay, cool. So practical strategies for gut health, which affects everyone. So on that note, since we've already given lip service to the term IBS, let's go ahead and just define that for clarity, because I think if we define it, people may say, oh, I might have that garbage disposal criteria that may apply to me as well. So let's define IBS first. Yeah. IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. It is considered a diagnosis of exclusion. So anytime you hear the word syndrome tacked on the end of something, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning it's a cluster of symptoms. We don't really call it some other definitive diagnosis. Once we've ruled out everything else, we just call it this. Because you look like these symptoms, maybe we don't know much else about it. Typically, there's not a whole lot we can do to effectively manage it and fix the root causes from a conventional standpoint. So they like stamp this on you and send you out the door, maybe with an antispasmodic, <laughs> maybe telling you take some Miralax. But there's not a lot of clarity on what causes it, what it really is, or how to fix it from a conventional yeah. perspective. All right. Let's just back up and say... People get this diagnosis or maybe they don't get this diagnosis because Mm -hmm. I think there is common but not normal symptoms. And therefore, someone may not realize that only having a bowel movement every three days, one week, or the really more defined one every two weeks is not normal. I think maybe, I don't know. I'm just probably if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to be the more self-aware person. That's the uh, understanding. So share this with a friend (laughs) who you may have found out is only pooping every once every two weeks. But The point is that, like you said, this could impact everyone. So if we think about people who either have the diagnosis or do not, but are having experiencing lack of regular motility, what do you think some of the questions that we get the most before we dig into the meat? What are people thinking is the problem or what are they looking for as, hey, I've tried this, but you know, do you have any advice on this? What do people ask you as a dietitian or what kind of messages do you get online from people that are dealing with gut issues first? I think the obvious ones are around how to fix the symptoms because that's what's popping up above the surface, bothering people. I'm constipated. I have diarrhea. I have a lot of pain. I have all this gas I can't get rid of. So a lot of it's about like, how do you fix the constipation or how do you slow down the diarrhea or how do you fix the gas? And so those are the like symptoms on the surface. And you and I are more interested in, yeah, let's put some Band-Aids on that and make you feel better. But let's look under the hood, (laughs) try to figure out how this happened in the first place. What's going on with stomach acid? What's going on with your stress levels? What's going on with all these other things that were brewing under the surface to push you over into these symptoms of IBS? And then I think the next kind of the other group of questions are around foods, right? The obvious (laughs) thoughts where people go usually is something's wrong with what I'm eating. I'm either not eating enough of something or I'm eating too much of something that's triggering all these symptoms. And so they start to focus on what they can do with their food to fix the symptoms. I think these are like totally logical responses, right? We're like dealing with symptoms that are bugging us every day. And we know that we eat food every day. And we a lot of times see symptoms following foods. So it makes sense that people go here first. And I actually am like one of those practitioners who's all for it. Hey, do the obvious. Do a good Google search. Try some things. Boots on the ground every day. Makes sense. Do the one-on-one things on your own. But if you're not getting traction, that's when it's time to like look a little deeper and try something more. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I would say what I, that was like the answer I was a bit rooting around for is that people will come to us because the term is dietitian, but I think sometimes there is more than what meets the eye there. There's going to be a little more that, that 
we offer besides diet changes. Now on that note, I think maybe it might be useful. I don't think this fits. I think this will get lost when we get into the rest of the content. So I think maybe we should actually address what is the conventional approach to IBS or constipation versus the holistic approach. And then the holistic approach will allow us to dive in. So let's just like preface, what does it conventionally look like? If someone has experienced this, they may have experienced it already. But if you haven't, we'd like to save you some time. Yeah, the conventional approach, this is from my own personal experience and what I hear clients being told by their doctors when they come to me is typically take some sort of over-the-counter product usually first to fix your diarrhea or your constipation. So like just take some Miralax. This is probably just IBS. Good luck. Sometimes they might prescribe something like an antispasmodic or a prescription level anti-diarrheal to help you even more in their mind. And then the other thing that has become more mainstream with conventional recommendations in the last several years is like recommending a low FODMAP diet. That seems to be the the golden boy right now of what should you do with your diet based on conventional medicine advice. So that's what I'm seeing doled out to people as first line recommendations when they have IBS. Now, how do we feel? How do we feel? I I can't argue with the literature. Honestly, there's great research showing that you get results when you bring in a low fat diet with a lot of people. Okay, but yeah, the research is behind it short term. So I'm very like I'm very moderate when I talk with people. I'm like, let's talk about the pros and cons. There's probably like some value in this and some value in that. But let's like put it on the table and really decide like what makes sense for you. So the deal with low FODMAP or really most or all other quote unquote gut healing diets of any kind is that they're very focused on short term symptom resolution. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Like you might need a dash of that, but it can't be your only strategy and it can't be your forever plan. So that's all fine and good if you're going to do it for a couple of weeks just to test the waters and see if you get symptom improvement. But at the same time, you need to be figuring out how to get under the hood and see what caused this and how do I reverse that as well? Because now we're getting publications, research publications that confirm what we've been seeing as practitioners all along is that the longer and longer you persist on these restrictive diets, the more and more dysfunction. You're really just cutting your nose to spite your face, basically. You're kicking the can down the road and you're getting immediate relief for the sake of long-term, like setting yourself back. Yeah. So I have strong concern with really making that your primary game plan. I don't think that's smart. I think it can be used in the right dose for a short period while you're exploring deeper causes. So if you've been doing low FODMAP and you saw benefits at the beginning and now you realize it's one, too restrictive, Two, it's not a long-term approach. Like we are immediate grab people and this is getting doled out pretty commonly, but it's not, like you said, a long-term solution. And what it's creating is dysfunction, which creates immune dysfunction and, and food sensitivities that are more severe. Um, yeah, so it, it just really breeds that stuff. Yeah, it that, that's totally does. what it does. Yeah. And on that note, setting the stage, when we're thinking about holistic strategies, we have maybe some diet changes and that may not look like restriction. It might look like stool testing. It might look like different supplement protocols to overcome. Essentially, we'll call them shortcuts to the outcomes that we want. So we can talk about all of those things or like all those things in general. But what we were just describing with people getting more and more restrictive really reminds me of this like stress and gut connection. And I think that might be where we should actually start is that's where I see things really getting spiraling out of control is that you do some food changes, relief And then it really spirals out of control. And we just want to continue to think that food is going to be the answer. The restriction of food is only going to be the answer. So let's talk about what happens next with like stress, nervous system imbalances, and what's going on in the gut. And how big of a part does that really play in the overall gut dysfunction, gut health, IBS, bloating, constipation picture? Mm -hmm. It's huge. 
it is a part of it for every single person dealing with gut issues, hands down. I think there are some people for whom it's a bigger part, honestly. And usually these people are somewhat aware of this, right? When work stress ramps up, my gut just gets really bad. A lot of people can make this connection at whatever level they can make it, but it's a part for everyone, whether they realize it or not. And so I would say it's not even like important to look at the longer and longer you go with symptoms or when diet hasn't worked. This has been going on as a piece of it from the very beginning. And that's why I say the stuff we're going to talk about today is stuff that everybody with gut symptoms needs to be tending to. Because if you're not, you're skip jumping over foundations and you're setting yourself back. You're not going to get as much benefit out of the other things that you're trying to do. So the brain gut connection is strong. Obviously, that's something that's widely accepted even by conventional medicine at this point. And a lot of what the brain is doing for digestion has to do with its perception incoming of what's stressful, what's needed, what's being felt at the moment. The brain is the receiver of all these signals from our physical senses, as well as from things that we're perceiving with in other ways. And so it is like sifting through all this and deciding what's needed. Are we needing to send a stress response? Are we needing digestive juices? What are we needing at the moment? And then it dictates down to all these components of our digestive tract. Like we need you or we don't need you. We need you to this degree. We need less. We need more. And so if your you know, brain is busy sifting through things that it perceives as high importance, things like stress of whatever type, things like I'm just really busy and I have a lot of tasks I need to fire off right now, it is going to downgrade digestive juices. And we have definitely animal data and some human data confirming this, that stomach acid, digestive enzyme production, bile acid production, all of those drop significantly when we're under chronic stress, for sure. That's very clear in the literature. And then under acute stress, like in the moment right now today, there appears to be this like variation person to person. There could be an excess of stomach acid in those situations, or there could be a reduction in stomach acid. But for sure, the brain is actively affecting digestive juices and it's also affecting the muscular motility, the nerve endings that are like signaling to the gut, move things along or don't move things along. Um, so there's a lot of input. Chronic stress is also very involved in immune regulation. So that definitely comes in as far as can you fight off stuff in the gut that you should be fighting off parasites and pathogens and whatnot. Or can you not? And are you overreacting to things that you shouldn't react to, like certain foods? So the brain is key in everything you want the gut to do for you. And if your gut is messed up <laughs> in whatever way, you really need to be going upstream and really working top down on the brain and on the stress inputs and how it's responding to all of those. So to add on to that, if we have stress in this moment, it's going to suppress how we digest stomach acid, digestive enzymes, bile, basically how we process and digest food despite what it looks like on the other end, whether it looks like loose stool, whether it looks like constipation, whether you can even tell or not because we don't have x-ray vision, as I like to say to clients. And so lack of digestion is, I think, one of the most foundational pillars that is essential sure. for long-term good gut health because lack of digestion equals fermentation, overgrowth of things, gas and bloating, et cetera. If there's gas and bloating after meals, there's fermentation happening instead mm -hmm. of digestion and absorption of nutrients. And once we have less digestion and absorption of nutrients, which is part of why we eat and digest yep. and absorb nutrients, the less we have of that, and then coupled with the fact that stress depletes certain nutrients, the less resources, when this happens over a long period of time, the fewer resources we have for all functions in the body to work properly. And so it's just like a slow breakdown. Of yeah, it's a downward spiral for yeah. sure. And usually I would say the 
best case situation is when someone comes into our sphere and has pretty good self-awareness of when symptoms began. And very commonly, first of all, I've never, ever seen an autoimmune flare-up or diagnosis that wasn't prefaced by some sort of stressful time of life, but also gut dysfunction in general. I very commonly see it happen after college, after certain times of life that are more, we really glamorize stress in our current world. And I sometimes I've gotten away from even using that term because we have so much unrealized um, nervous system dysfunction. Even myself, when I've gotten lab data back, oh, I should change how I'm doing things regardless. So anyway, yeah, I thought I was managing. I'm a high functioning stress. And that actually is, that is a great way to say it. Those have been some of the hardest clients because if it's unrealized, then you can't address something that's unrealized or someone doesn't think is a problem. So usually those folks are very unaware of the internal dialogue, the constant stress input that's coming from within, from the way that they actively interact with themselves and their thoughts. And when you have external stress inputs, a lot of times we can remove ourselves from those or turn things off at certain times. But our internal dialogue and the way we process the world, it's huge for some people. We can come back a little bit to after we get through some of these foundational principles, which I think we'll jump into now because we want to go over practical strategies that we should be considering as foundations before you get into that advanced stuff. And then we can give a little lip service. If you have tried all of these, actually, which doubtful. Whenever someone says, I've tried everything, I'm like, I doubt it. Let's talk about it. I think it's admirable that you think you've tried everything and that's okay. But there is probably my mantra is that we always have options. So let's get into some practical strategies for gut health or IBS that can be really helpful. Yeah. And there are so many. I have 10 on the list. I cut it down to 10, but there are so many more. But I think simple things, the first few are really geared around not what you eat, because again, there's a lot of that out there that could be important too. But we're talking about how do you even approach food? How do you eat when it's time to eat? Because all of this is signaling to your brain, are we digesting or are we responding to stress? So I think even before you eat, taking a moment, I try to tell clients, even if it's 30 seconds, like we all have 30 seconds to take a moment and do some deep belly breathing. And so what this is doing, especially if we're really focusing on letting the abdomen expand and having long, slow exhales, even a few cycles of that is what it's doing is it's it's urging the body, nudging it out of fight or flight or sympathetic dominance and into rest and digest. It's just signaling to the brain. We're done with that. We're setting it aside for now. We need digestion, all hands on deck. And that will start to signal down to these glands, to the musculature, to everything that we're going to digest now. You taking a few moments to do deep belly breathing is a great way to set the stage for good digestion. I think number two would be to don't just jump right into eating. After you've done your breathing, take a moment to observe the food and to smell the food. And this all sounds like so small, right? Like eye roll, what's that going to do? But really, when you take in the food visually, when you smell the food, that does, quote unquote, get the juices flowing. It's an old phrase, but it's very physiologically accurate. And if you think of a time where you like walk into your favorite restaurant or bakery or home when dinner is being cooked, and just that moment where you're like, oh, it just all hits you and it just smells so good and it takes you in. And if you really listen into your body, you'll notice there's excess saliva being produced. Your mouth will actually be watering. And that is part of your body signaling digestive juices. The saliva itself has these enzymes that break down carbs and fats. It's getting the ball rolling, ready for what's about to come in. So you intentionally, even sitting down to a quick lunch, can take a minute to observe the food, to think through it visually and to smell it and to take it in with other senses before you start to eat. So that would be number two. And then the third would be when you're actually eating, taking your first bite, thinking, slow down. 
Most of us are wolfing food without realizing it. We give the obligatory like three chews and a swallow and on to the next bite. And we really need to be, I tell my kids all the time, I'm forever saying like half bites, double chews, half bites, double chews. We really need like smaller bites, lots and lots of chewing. Set your fork down, push your plate away, recline a bit. Take a moment to chew that until it's pureed. Like everything you eat should be pureed or nearly so before you swallow it. I, I bet because <laughs> I have a hard time doing it, but chewing Same. slowly and thoroughly. So this manual digestion by the teeth, again, the longer it's in the mouth, the more saliva is being secreted. That's going to start some of the enzyme breakdown, but you're manually breaking down the food and that's reducing the burden on that stomach acid on the rest of the digestion so that it has less work to do. So you're lowering the burden of digestion, especially if you're in a position where you have disrupted gut function. Everything you can do in these ways is helping your body work less when it's burdened. So chewing, eating slowly. I think number four would be limiting the fluid that you drink with meals. This would be a small way to let your body have max potency of its stomach acid. So if we're drinking gobs and gobs of water, we're diluting the pH of our stomach acid a little bit. And that potency of acid, especially if you're someone who has suppressed stomach acid output and you're just not putting out very much, you want it to be as max potency as it can be, as acidic as possible. So don't dilute it with water. So that's going to help you, especially with protein breakdown, to have max potency of your stomach acid. So maybe limiting to four ounces, three to four ounces with a meal. And I think it's easiest when you actually serve yourself that much. Don't serve yourself a big glass and expect yourself to not drink it all. Serve yourself in a three or four ounce glass with your meal. And that's what you're going to use. So it's basically like wetting the mouth between bites when you need to versus getting your hydration done with your meal. So limiting fluids with meals, I think would be number four. That can be helpful. Number five would be trying out a digestive tea after dinner. These would be like along the lines of taking bitters and people take bitters in the form of supplements and people eat bitter herbs and bitter greens with their foods. And these things, the bitter flavors of them on the tongue actually send signals down to our gut to improve release of digestive juices. So they really are signaling mechanisms. Some of them increase motility to some degree. So we're really trying to again, communicate to the body what we need from it to help it do its job a little better. So there's one that Puka makes, P-U-K-A, has an organic after-dinner tea. I just like the blend there. And I think it tastes pretty good too. So it's got fennel and licorice and anise, some of those that are pretty common digestive aids. I think on top of the fact that the components themselves are digestive aids, just the relaxation of having a cup of tea after dinner. Something about sitting with a warm beverage is just relaxing too, which a lot of us need to take a moment and not like jump right up from whatever we're eating and run off to life again. We need to take a moment and let our body process what we just gave it and think through what we've just done. Let things sit a bit before we jump right back into life. So I think after dinner teas can be nice after one or more of your meals during the day. And then especially if you're someone who deals with slower motility, just a hot beverage is a bowel stimulant. When that heat hits the body, it does send a nerve signal down to the lower bowel to encourage it to release, to make room. So warm things on top of the fact that it has this digestive aid can be really helpful in a digestive tea. So those would be a handful of things about the moment of eating. How can you approach that and do that better to help your body out? I think some other things that are less focused on that would be like, considering giving your gut some rest every now and then, especially if you're someone who feels like the digestive burden is high, your gut's just not processing things. It's backed up. It's bloated. It's gassy. Maybe it's constipated. 
it's like up to its neck and stuff it needs to process. It's like at work when the papers are piling up and you still only have a certain number of hours in the day. There's just no way at some point you're going to finish it. There's always a breaking point where too much is too much. And the body's really the same, especially if it's really burdened by digestion. So I think considering maybe weekly, maybe even monthly, it doesn't have to be every other day or something, but taking a break from the burden of putting more and more food down and maybe doing like a liquid day where you get bone broth and electrolyte drinks and clear liquids and just things that are a little gentler, a little easier on the body and see if that helps you, if that does feel like it gives your body a breather and your symptoms wane a little bit. And then you go back to your norm the next day and it gives you a little bit of relief. Maybe that's something you could rotate in. I think fasting, quote unquote, you can get Definitely where you're doing too much of that and skewing things further. And we don't want to get the body, the gut specifically, but other areas of food relationship and metabolism and other things on a swinging pendulum. We want to be careful with how often and in what way we introduce something like a fasting type of thing. But I think one day here and there of doing liquids, doing caloric liquids even can be really helpful to give some people a break. So that's an idea. I think number seven, and I'll send like specifics of this to clients a lot of times breathing exercises that go beyond. I'm still sitting at my desk or I'm still sitting at the table trying to do some breathing in the right way, but taking a moment to get down on the floor, lie on your back, spread your body out, unbuckle your pants. We're really trying to give the musculature, give the gut itself like room to expand, space to do so, to flop and fall open. If you will, that's basically what we're doing. We're trying to like give it some space. We all spend so much time crouched over, hunched over, physically tense, sitting up in chairs where our physical body is compressed, our gut is compressed. And so we're just trying to spread that out, give it some room, and then do some of this deep belly breathing. Again, focus on long exhale. So methods like four, seven, eight, or similar things like that, where you're really focusing on a long, slow exhale. So we're helping the physical digestive tract spread out and expand. But we're also, again, circling back to that nervous system and ushering it out of fight or flight and into rest and digest. Interestingly, when I was dealing with IBS years ago as like a young, high-achieving dietitian, working too hard, giving too much myself, super overstressed, I would have these seemingly random gut cramps and it would just build and build through the workday. Or, oh, I just need to sit down, but I couldn't. And the only thing I knew to relieve it was to like just get home at the end of the day and I would lay down on the floor in the living room and I would just do a bunch of breathing. And I didn't even understand the physiology of that at this point. I didn't know anything I know today about the nervous system and innervation with the gut and all of that. But I just knew that's what made me feel better finally at the end of the day. It didn't even take it all away, but it at least took me down several notches and I could regroup. And by the next morning, I was fine after a good sleep. But this sort of laying down, letting the gut expand and doing this sort of deep breathing is really a powerful tool in your pocket to help your body unwind and relax. So I think that can be really helpful. You could even layer onto that something like a heating pad or something warm over the abdomen to just push even more relaxation. Those sorts of advanced <laughs> lie down on your back and breathe deeply approaches can be really helpful. And along similar lines, number eight would be like positions, like a lot of yoga positions, actually. But, you know, you could do this anytime. It doesn't have to be in a formal like yoga class or video. But a lot of the yoga positions, like there's one even called wind relieving pose that you've done. But these are great ways to put the body in a position where it can expel trapped gas, where it can encourage freedom of movement inside the abdomen. So wind relieving pose is one of them. Tabletop or cat cow would be another. There's a fetal position pose that can work quite well. The malasana squat, which is like a super deep squat where your butt's like almost on the ground, but your knees are hiked up and you're standing on your feet, but you're like squatting down deep. 
That one can be really good for relieving trapped gas. And then happy baby is another one. So there are several yoga poses that you can just do these for a few minutes even and see if they help you. But certainly if you're dealing with these things regularly, I would try to be doing these things daily. Have some time for some good abdominal relaxation, deep breathing, maybe some yoga positions and see if it helps you do it for a week or two and see if it helps. I think number nine would be abdominal massage, actually massaging. And some people who are tender in that area are like, oh, I don't know if that, oh, that sounds like it would feel very good. But it can really help to, again, just assist the body because you're going to use pressure to move gas and to move stool that's trapped. And so you would lie down on your back, ideally, for this as well. And you're basically, you can Google this on YouTube, abdominal massage for trapped gas or IBS. But you're basically going to take your fist or the palm of your hand and apply like medium pressure at your right hip bone, that front hip bone, right? So bottom of your abdomen, lower right. And you're just going to push up and then across the abdomen under the rib cage and then down the left side and then toward the middle, toward the middle of the pelvis and out. So you're basically just tracing, you're just tracing your large intestine. You can use light pressure and that would actually be more for simulating lymphatic flow, which also is girding up behind, like moving, moving the gut. But medium to deep pressure would be more like actually engaging that colon and nudging what's in there along. And we're simulating, honestly, what normal motility would be. There are multiple kind of layers of musculature in the GI tract that are always squishing and squeezing and throbbing to move things through. And so we're just like doing that from the outside by doing these abdominal massages. So that can be helpful. You could layer these together, right? You could do the lay down, the deep breathing, the warm heating pad, and then you could do some massage and just see what it feels like if it helps you. And I think finally, number 10 would be like using a stool, using a potty stool. These have become more popular in recent years. It used to be just for our toddlers <laughs> to get on the toilet. <laughs> but now a lot of people are really trying this. This is the way like traditional people would have gone to the bathroom. And so we're just hiking up the knees and putting some pressure in the abdomen to help it to move things along. So you can get a little stool for cheap on Amazon, or you may even have something like that would serve you at home. And that could help to position your body where it's easier to move things out. So there's not so much straining and pressure when you're having a bowel movement, if that's difficult for you. So those are 10 things that I think are super simple. People can try today. And I wrote very clearly at the top of my, I always, this is my like brain. I just have to write while you're talking. And if I already have half of this <laughs> written down, I wrote down how you eat, not what you eat. This is how exactly. you eat strategies. And so we're having a little bit of a context shift in our brain that how you eat. And because we always think about, oh, stress, lifestyle, et cetera. Like these are the stressors from how we eat, eating fast, trying to eat and and fight or flight versus rest and digest, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mechanical digestion. There's a lot of mechanics here, right? So I know what you're talking about with the quote unquote squatty potty discussion or ancestral version of sitting like that. But can you describe that a little bit more if this is the first mm-hmm. time someone's heard about this? Yep. So these are little stools. Usually they like sit around the base of your toilet. So they might be elevated by six inches or nine inches. And it's just a platform for your feet to rest on. So your feet are not now on the floor when you're seated on the toilet. They're resting on this stool six or nine inches above the floor. And what that does is that your knees are going to pop up a little higher in the air or basically just providing a little bit of compression to the abdomen. And so it naturally has a little more force on it to expel things. So the pressure isn't on you to urge and squeeze and push because that too much of that can cause some problems. So this is just positioning your body where there's natural pressure and gravity working for it when you move a bowel movement. The quick and easy thing to do without buying a stool would be to, you can even experiment with raising like one of your knees 
and hug it with your left arm, pull your knee up to your left, you know, breast or chest area and pull back on it with your arm to create that pressure on the left side of your gut. Even just pulling that one knee up while you're seated on the toilet to see if that helps put a little pressure on that descending colon where stool is packed up there and trying to wait to get out. That'd be a super simple thing you could do yourself. But buying the stool would be just a good like practice, I think, to get in for people who have to push and work to expel bowel movements. Perfect. All right. So you just shared 10 essentially mechanical or how you eat, for the most part, tools that everyone can use for improving gut health. So now let's just give a little bit of lip service to that. This is a step toward trying all the things, right? Because one thing people may have done is adding things, adding something like Miralax, adding fiber, (laughs) which by the way, if we add fiber too fast, we can get impacted and constipated as well, actually. Sad reality is we tend to go all in on something, but you can actually make it worse in the short term. So just throwing that in there really quick. Hydration, some of those things can be looked at. And then the next thing people will look at, is there something in my diet that is creating this sometimes? Mm -hmm. These are mechanical. Again, backing up that digestion is the most important tool. So if we can do anything to help support and improve digestion, it's going to create less immune system dysfunction downstream and create less immune system chaos downstream. So We've talked now about these mechanical, how you eat things, easy to do things. What kind of problems in the gut with these 10 things? Now, these could be supportive for everything, but what comes after that, like in our holistic practices that may may be an advanced strategy beyond this that someone may need? I think we just want to spell out that, by the way, there are other things that can be going on for sure. Mm -hmm. These are the DIY options that you should use. But what comes next after this for us as clinicians to help someone fix this from a root cause perspective longer term? Yeah, I think what you build on top of this stuff is, especially if you've had symptoms for longer or they're pretty severe, you want to be trying to get to what caused them in the first place. And so our investigation would usually be like, are you really making enough stomach acid? It might go beyond the strategies that we've talked about. There may be a reason for that. Maybe you have H. pylori. Maybe you have nutritional deficiencies that don't allow you to make stomach acid. We need to figure that out. We need to test for those things. We need to bring in supplemental help or killing agents or whatever to fix that. That would be one example. Another example would be like if you're suffering from these symptoms and you have a really entrenched microbial imbalance lower in the gut, in the small intestine or in the large intestine, like a bacterial overgrowth, like a yeast overgrowth, like undergrowth of good bacteria, a highly under-recognized cause for IBS symptoms in my experience. But if you have these imbalances, the strategies we're talking about today are not enough, very likely. And so we need to test for and, and understand what specific imbalance you have so that we can then layer on top of these things a more targeted approach, whether it's supplements, medications, food changes, all of that to effectively head on tackle the imbalance and right that ship. So that would be examples. Or if you have a leaky gut that's really driving part of your IBS, part of your food sensitivities, we need to shore that up. We need to lower chronic stress. We need to lower things that we know disrupt the gut lining. We need to bring in supplements that actively rebuild it. We need to do any and all of that to address that directly. And so usually we're adding on something like testing. I do comprehensive stool testing for so many people and it's really helpful. And that can be your next level of naming the specific imbalances that are going on so that you can add a more targeted approach to address those while you're also tending to these foundations. But I don't know if you've seen this person, but like the longer and longer, the deeper and deeper I go into gut work. And then usually the more and more people you help, the more and more complex people come to you. And I mostly see at this point, like really complex, 
long-term gut cases. So they're way beyond, hey, buy a potty stool and everything will be fixed for you. But the more of that work I do, the more I actually appreciate how important these foundations are because so many people are desperate and in pain and they want relief from something big. And it's important to go there and have someone who can guide you through those more advanced tests and protocols and all of that. That's really critical. But if you're skip jumping over this stuff because it does not seem that important or because it takes a few extra minutes of your time throughout the day, you are not going to get as much out of those other things. Because the things we've talked about today are the long-term strategy to help your body do what it was designed to do well. And if you're just ignoring that and looking to some medication or supplement protocol to get you out of the ditch, you're calling in the toe, but then you're trying to run on four flat tires and you're just not going to get very far, basically. Yeah. I want to mention something that I'm seeing that kind of piggybacks on you saying I'm seeing more complex issues. And I appreciate that you didn't mention, you didn't name comprehensive stool testing. One thing I'm hesitant to do at this point, because this is what I'm seeing in practice, is name the what I might use. I'm happy to tell people what I use in practice. I have no problem with that. What I think is the issue is that people go and pursue these tests or maybe get different tests, and some of them are not very good. Sometimes they get a good test, but the interpretation and intervention is poor. And so what I get on my doorstep is I've done, they truly have done the right things but didn't get the right things. They were definitely on the right track, but did not get results. And my conversation that I'd like to bring to this is that is an unfortunate problem. And I have a lot of empathy for it. And I think all failures are lessons. And so we can only take why that didn't work, unravel it and go through it. So usually in that case, I'm like, please send me those results before we talk about this. Then tell me what you did. And then hopefully I can see the holes in what you did very quickly. That's what I want to do for someone like, oh, you had an ineffective protocol. That's a really common situation. Or someone is just treated by the test. That's Mm -hmm. so inappropriate, right? And that's what happens conventionally all the time. I'm not trying to pick on anyone, but that's what it is. That's the reason that people have normal test results and don't feel good, right? Is because the test says it's fine, but the symptoms clearly do not display that things are fine. And so that's the epidemic. That's the gray area epidemic that we have now. So I just want to mention that people could be doing holistic type strategies. They can be taking the right tests. If they're not being successful, it's not okay. I'm sorry that it hasn't been successful. But unfortunately, as more and more people adopt these things and practice, there's going to be a gap in how everyone practices and experience matters. And you want to just make sure that you're being treated by your symptoms and not just your test. And you want to make sure you have effective protocols. And so all we can take from every experience is that if something doesn't work, let's make sure we do something different next time and do a better job next time to get results. And so I just want to mention that because I'm sure that it applies to some people listening to this. And we did some marketing recently for our food sensitivity program. And I just could not believe the number of people that had this exact experience that kind of landed on my doorstep. And so just wanted to mention it. 1000% agree. And I think years ago, like when I started this kind of work, it was like I was getting people on my doorstep, as you say, from conventional medicine who had been burned that way. And the longer and longer I go on and the more complexity I see, now I'm getting them, like you're saying, from more like a functional medicine or a holistic approach. They're falling on my doorstep too. And I think it's just like you're saying, I I think the downside of the availability and the number of practitioners who are doing this kind of advanced work is that they're not looking at it from an experienced view of understanding the whole picture and Mm -hmm. gluing it back into the puzzle of the whole person and their symptom picture. They're just looking at the values on the readouts 
And I call it big box functional medicine, but I, I think it's starting to fail more and more people where they're like, oh, it's H. pylori. This is our protocol for that. Take these things. Good luck. Oh, you also have this. Then we'll add on these four supplements. That should totally do it. Hope that works for you. And you don't heal that way. You kill things that way. And that, that's a piece of it. <laughs> but it cannot be about just that or you're going to end up in this spot again. You just don't know how long it's going to take you to end up there. And I think that kind of approach is why like SIBO treatment and other things mm. are have such a terrible recurrence rate. I don't think it's because they're necessarily using all the wrong agents. I think it's because they're looking at the whole thing wrong. They're like zooming in and finding a problem, naming it one thing and doing a certain thing just for that problem, forgetting that problem developed in the context of the entire gut. And not only that, the entire person and their life and everything that was going on. And if you don't roll it back and look at all of those inputs from a 360 view, you're only going to get them a few steps down the road. And that's where you get the cyclical recurrence. And I won't say like, I bet a thousand and everybody who comes to me in that situation, I know exactly how to fix them. But I do my very best if I know you do to like really time out, zoom out and look at the whole picture. And that's the emphasis of what we talked about today. These things that seem simple and seem small, they're really not. I know they're not sexy, but they are critical to how you approach eating and your interactions with your gut and with your whole health. And if you don't really work on that thoughtful, mindful approach, you're not going to get past this stuff if you don't retrain some of these behaviors. So, yep. yeah, totally. That was my little soapbox. But yeah, totally with you. And I, as we back up and move on in practice, I'm aware that maybe there's opportunities to provide mentorship to try to do what we can in the world to support people. Because the more longer I've been doing this, the longer I think everyone needs help and support and a holistic strategy. Sometimes you have to have some failures to be ready to be all in on all the things, sure. unfortunately. That's human behavior. Mm -hmm. Inspiration versus desperation. We're usually desperate before we change. Anyway, it was so good to talk through all of this with you. So just to recap, because I have some notes from before. And so recapping, we have these basic, cheap and easy practical strategies that are going to basically be those what you do every day matters more than what you do every once in a while type approach things that will compound over time. And these are all wonderful things. And it would be good to have a list and to dedicate some time on assessing these in our own personal lives. And then some of the things beyond this that this episode is cover is those significant bug problems like imbalance of the bacteria, yeast, parasites, et cetera, which we've talked about already. Those like longer term gut dysfunction stuff where there's enzyme insufficiencies or gut permeability and all of those things and what needs to be done to support and heal that. And then the mechanical issues that you listed, which were hernia, et cetera, or essentially resectioned colon and all types of different things. There's a lot to gut health, right? That's all we have to say. To There's a lot to gut health. So I think it's exciting. There's so much opportunity when we think about it that way. It's not like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. There's a lot of opportunity to improve. If you feel like you've addressed one area or a couple mm -hmm. facets, there's still a lot of opportunity for things to do and the right combination of things um, so true. can help you. So Dina... If you could leave people with one statement today or like parting thoughts, what would you want to tell them? And then where can people find you online? Yeah, I think it's just what you said, Krista, which is there is so much opportunity here. And so many people are suffering from IBS and really in pain and do feel desperate. But there are a lot of tools in your hand that don't cost much and that you can do if you'll take the time to do them and commit to the discipline of rethinking your approach to your gut health. So there's a lot of hope here, I think. And I'll also share with you in case you want to include it in the show notes. I have a couple of articles about 
these things. So one is about root causes of IBS. I think it's more than 15 on our list of helping people think through what could be the real cause of some of my symptoms. And then an IBS tips article with a lot of these and more and a free download called the mealtime checklist that I share with clients sometimes too, just things you want to check through and think about as you're approaching food, some of which we talked about and a few others. So I'll include those links for you in case you want to share those with people, just more free resources. Where to find me online? I'm back to the book at back to the book nutrition on Instagram and Facebook. And then my website is back to the book nutrition.com. And if people are interested in one-on-one work, I offer a free 10-minute discovery call. You can sign up for that in my social profiles or from any page on my website. And that just lets me hear a little more of your story and give you a really good, honest read on whether I think I can help. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.